listeners and welcome to the very final season of Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This week's guest is Uzma Hassan, a producer known for bringing subversive stories to global audiences. Her first feature as producer was The Infidel, starring Omar Jalili, David Baddiel and Archie Panjabi. Her latest feature film, Creature, directed by Academy Award winner Asif Kapadia, is a groundbreaking, genre-busting collaboration with Laurence Olivier Award-winning choreographer Akram Khan and sees the English National Ballet perform a story inspired by the play Wojciech. Uzma is currently interim CEO of Film Cymru Wales, the development agency for film in Wales, having stepped down from its board to take up the role. Additionally, Uzma is chair of the Bush Theatre, home for new writing and talent, and she was previously a non-executive director on the board of Channel 4 and a trustee of Bird's Eye View, a non-profit that campaigns for gender equality in film. We talk about the world event that prompted her to pivot into the film industry, her first job working with director Mira Nair, producing Creature during lockdown and how it inspired a different way of working, what good leadership means to her, redefining success, and many, many more juicy topics. It was a really engaging and thoughtful conversation from my perspective that I really enjoyed having, so I hope you enjoy listening. This is episode 131 of Best Girl Grip. Hi Isma and welcome to Best Girl Grip, thank you so much for being here. Thank you Nicole, it's lovely to be with you. I'd like to start this conversation by asking whether you recall a moment or an experience or even a person that perhaps inspired you to want to work in the film industry. There have been many moments, but actually the real moment was uh, was 9-11. I was working for a big international PR firm. I'd sort of, it was my first job out of university and I was climbing the corporate ladder and doing quite well and 9-11 happened and like for so many people it was it, it was one of those big jolt events that makes you reassess what you're doing and 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 what the world is and what your place in the world is and it really did that for me and it made me think that I needed to do something with my brain that was a bit more helpful to the world than making big corporate companies richer. (laughs) That was my impetus to initially go to graduate school and I applied to do to study film and literature at Harvard and then eventually that led to me uh, sort of pivoting and, and, and starting to work in the film industry. I felt like that image uh, of the plane going into the buildings was so powerful and it was going to be used for used and abused for so many things and has been for the past however many years. I thought image creation is something that's really important and it's something that I want to be part of. I think that's so interesting that, you know, given that you started out in corporate and you almost had something that had a real sense of a path, did it feel like quite a big step and a pivot to walk away from that and move into something that was a bit more precarious? I was in my early 20s at the time and was, like everyone is, in their early 20s, I felt invincible. So luckily for me, in a way, I didn't even think about that. I just thought, well, this is the thing that I want to do. And of course, I shall do it. 
obviously now I wish I'd known a little bit more about how economically precarious the film industry is, how important it is to actually have, especially when I started sort of a good 15, 20 years ago, to have a network of people that you know and have an in and all of that. And I had none of that. You know, my parents were doctors and and I had no understanding or insight into the film industry at all. So I was very lucky initially to be taken under the wing of the director, Mira Nair, director of Monsoon Wedding. She's a Harvard alum and I saw her speak at Harvard and I just said to her, please let me do anything on the film or I'll make the tea or whatever. She actually gave me my first job. So I... Incredibly, I think I'm the only person I know in the film industry that has never done an internship because the first job I had was on Mira Nair's film with Focus Features, Vanity Fair, which is a $25 million film. And I was I was the post-production assistant, you know, nothing fancy, but it was still a real job. And that helped me, I think, to feel that, oh, yeah, this is pretty easy. <laughs> this is, I'm just going to be able to do this, no problem. I mean, that's an incredible story. And, and and testament, though, to the courage of asking for kind of what you want, though, that, you know, it can pan out in that way. I think the courage of asking, but also really a testament to how important it is to have advocates in the industry. Mira, at that point, pulled me up when she didn't have to, but she really did. I credit her with that, but I also think that's why it's so important to have a variety of people in power in the industry, because she was in a position of power, and she, as another brown woman, wanted to help me. Now, that's just a natural instinct that people have, and as our industry gets more representative of the world around us, like those people in power can, can help pull people up. I had a really loving introduction to the film industry which I'm very grateful for. And was it on that set or in that role as post-production assistant that you saw a plethora of other roles and perhaps began to think about how you could carve out a career for yourself in the film industry? Did you see the role of producer and think okay maybe that's something I could do? Yeah very much so. It was it was great to see how a big juggernaut of a movie operates and all the little parts that are required to keep moving forward in order to make it happen. So that was really insightful. And I think I also realised at that point that there is crew and crew work and then there's the people that are sort of making the decisions about what the film is going to be, what what it's how it's going to work, what it's going to sound like. And I thought, oh, what they're doing is kind of more interesting. So once you'd sort of identified the area that looked more interesting to you, how did you go about, you know, gravitating towards it and manifesting roles that perhaps had more decision-making power? I identified that I wanted to be a producer. And by that time, I sort of had to make a decision whether I was going to stay in the US or come back to the UK. And there's a whole bunch of personal family circumstances around it as well. But I decided, you know, I'm a Brit, I want to be part of the British film industry, I believe in it, and I want to go back and work in the British film industry. So I did that. And quite naively, I thought, I've just gone to Harvard, I've just worked with Mira Nair and Focus Features, I'm just going to walk into an amazing job. 
And I was unemployed for a very long time. And I was applying to things, the BBC and Film 4 and all of the places where you would think to. But again, I had no ins, I had no contacts. And it was a real sharp shock to see that the industry in the UK at the time was very closed, very closed off to quote-unquote outsiders. Uzma's sound cut out ever so slightly at this moment, but she spoke about how she spent a little bit of time during this period working for a commercial production company. And then my first job in the UK was with a company called Slingshot Productions, which is sort of the equivalent of an indigent. They were making, at the time digitally focused features that would be made for under a million quid, which was very controversial at the time. But I would like to say that, again, the owner of that company was a South Asian man. So, again, you see the pattern, like someone saw, I I had all of this potential, I had all of this great experience, but it wasn't until someone who who thought, actually, I want to help that person, that I got my next job. So then I worked there as head of development for about five years and made my first feature film there, The Infidel. Well, definitely, I'm going to pin that because I want to come back to The Infidel and, you know, how you got that project off the ground. But I think it's worth talking about the fact that you say there that you felt quite immediately like an outsider and that you weren't afforded the opportunities that maybe you should have been. And I'm wondering what you did to kind of keep your morale up during that time, you know, obviously at the moment. And now there's sort of lots of networks and communities that sort of do uplift, you know, people from the Southeast Asian diaspora. Were you having to like go out and find that for yourself? You know, it's a really, really good question. And there just wasn't that. You know, I'm talking about early 2000s. Those things and those schemes did not exist. And we were pre these sort of social movements like Black Lives Matter, where people became a little bit more aware of how exclusionary our industries are and what how damaging that is. At the time, it just didn't exist. And it was very, very lonely. And luckily, I think because I'd come off this incredible high of going to this incredible school where you're basically taught, I always say the difference between Harvard and Oxbridge is Oxbridge teaches you that you're entitled to rule the world, whereas Harvard teaches you that you're there to change the world. And I really felt that. I thought, I can't quit because it's really important that I'm doing this and I'm going to change the industry by my presence in it. And that's that, maybe that sounds super grandiose, but actually I don't think it was because at the time there were hardly any South Asians working in the film industry. So yeah, keeping up that morale was, it's something that I've had to do throughout my career actually. And sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's really, really hard. And sometimes you just, you have to have a film family around you of peers that support you and that you can speak with and who will hear your experience and not judge you for it. Believing and staying in the industry, I think, is far harder now and then than it is getting getting in, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, that's a very valid point. But to come back to the infidel, that feels like a real example of work that is there to create change. How did that project come about? And, you know, for it to be your first film as well, that feels like so momentous that this was like the film that you're announcing yourself to the industry with. 
Yeah, I'm so proud of that film. And I think you're right. I think it's it's still a radical film in that it was depicting Londoners as they really are, you know, from all walks of life. And it's a film that I think, you know, it was difficult to get made at that time. It would still be difficult to get made now. And it's it was very unapologetic about the communities it was depicting. And I love that about that film. And, you know, at the time I was working with producers Arvin David and Kevin Ash, and they had this company that was backed by venture capitalists. And they'd met Omid Jalili, who was good friends with David Badil, the writer of The Infidel, and Omid Jalili was the star. And I think David had seen Omid in a doing a comedy show. He used to do these huge, huge global tours and was doing at the time like very spiky, uh, multicultural, political comedy and was just really funny and a great physical comedian as well. The way David tells it is that he was looking at him on stage and thought this guy could be Muslim or Jewish and then had this idea of the fish out of water story. I love that that's my first movie because I think even to this day, I think it's a subversive story and I think it's told in a really loving way and it's told in an accessible way. And that's the kind of movie I want to make, always. Did it shape your trajectory moving forward? Do you feel like you started to, you know, see or get brought projects that maybe spoke to that taste? You know, the amazing thing is, is that I I made that film when I was 29 years old and Again, I thought, oh, this is going to open up the floodgates and loads of people are going to be bringing me their scripts and stuff because it did very well. You know, we sold it in over 60 countries. We traveled the world with it. There was a musical remake that was on at the uh, Theatre World Stratford. I then sold the Hindi language remake in uh, Bombay to a studio, to Viacom. So it was the little film that really could and did. The industry was not ready. The industry was different back then. And I think had I made that film and it had it had the success that it did sort of in the last five years, my career would have taken off, but it didn't. So I had to, I had to sort of start from scratch. So then I ended up thinking, okay, I need to, I need to make a big move here again. Um, and that's when I decided to go to the Middle East to work for a film financier for the Doha Film Institute in their film financing arm and learn a little bit more about how films get put together internationally, globally. Because I knew and I felt that the kind of film I want to make is not going to get financed by the British film industry. Did that give you a different perspective on filmmaking? Did you kind of come away with a a greater sense of how international co-productions work or, you know, where other funding streams are outside of the UK? Yeah, it really did. And it was really necessary and great because it, it expanded my mind out from the very narrow confines of the, the British film industry, which is still essentially three big pots of money. Well, not even big, like three sort of modest pots of money and gatekeepers who you have to know. 
I'm wondering as well if it also gave you a sense of how to tell authentic stories in the sense, you know, outside of the Western perspective, because I often feel like with anything that is is produced, you know, from that Western lens, particularly pertaining to black and brown bodies, it sort of definitely coalesces around ideas of trauma and pain. And, you know, we, we have the slave film and, you know, we, we, we have all these kind of historical films where we rely on black and brown filmmakers to kind of educate white people. And like that that's all we look to them for. And I'm wondering if you, as well with The Infidel being this subversive comedy, how you came to this idea that actually what we need is to see stories of wonder and, and the sublime and joy and, you know, spikiness. Like, talk to me a little bit about how you develop that sense of taste. You're so right. And I think that's still the case, actually. And for me, it was I always felt like, well, of course I want to see those stories. Why wouldn't you? The stories of suffering to me when I would watch them, especially in the South Asian communities, lots of honour-killing films, lots of terrorism-focused films, it was not something that I understood or connected with or thought that it was really depicting any kind of brownness that I had seen or witnessed. It's kind of stories and communities had become very fetishized. So you're quite right. It, so much of it is steeped in explain to us who you are and show us your suffering. I just was not interested in that. And I didn't think audiences were interested in that because I, I, tra- I was lucky enough to travel the world with the infidel from Jordan to India to Trinidad and to have pe- every single time have people come up to me after screenings and just say, oh, your film was so fun. It was so funny. It's, it was exa- no matter what religion or, or background people were from. Oh, it was, my, I have an aunt exactly like that. I have an uncle exactly like that. And I think for me, that's what storytelling was about. And that's why I wanted to, to be in the storytelling business, because I wanted to help remind myself and others of our similarities and how we are a global community and that and that was really amazing to to go away and to be in Doha in the, in the Middle East has incredible filmmakers incredible female filmmakers in particular they were just telling these really interesting stories and now of course we hear a lot about you know stories from other parts of the world thanks to the streamers that have been brought to like western audiences and they're like oh wow you're human too (laughs) um but i'd i'd always known that and i think also is empathy is a really important thing for us as a society that we are struggling with and have been struggling with i think forever but particularly in the last few decades and as a small kid watching whatever television shows you're watching from biker grove to whatever i had to empathize with the white kid you know inevitably the white kid that you'd have or kids that you'd have on on that show so i from a very young age was taught empathy the little white kids were not taught that they would never saw anyone apart from themselves. So anyone of colour has been othered from a very young age. I'm, I'm so glad that's changing somewhat in the creative industries and, and in children's programming and, and in adult programming now. But we've not done very well on that. And it's had massive, massive effects and a knock-on effect psychically and emotionally and and is I think one of the great reasons why the different civil rights movements that have gone before have have not entirely stuck because our culture hasn't really reflected our desire to be 
better and our desire to perhaps live in commune a bit more. Yeah, it's been more like surface change as opposed to kind of deep work. And I feel like you're so right to identify that word empathy, because what I often struggle with is the word of like discovery as though like, oh, we found these voices. And you're so right. It's like they've always been there. They've always been vocal. It's it's just that we haven't listened. You know, we haven't paid attention to it. So like discovery just, yeah, always makes me feel a bit ick when I hear about that. But I think perhaps now's the right time to segue and talk about Creature, which is a film that you produced last year and directed by Asif Kapadia, because it is such a great expression of wonder and weirdness and exactly the type of stories that I feel like you are excited about telling. Um, It's a cinematic staging of the English National Ballet show Creature. Talk to me about how an idea for that even comes about, because it is such a hybrid piece of work. Yeah, it really is. And I, I would just like to say we have we are on the Guardian's list of the best films of 2023. And I'm so proud of that. I had been a huge fan of Akram Khan's work for a very long time. He's an incredible mix of contemporary dance and Kathak Indian classical dance. He'd been working for the, with the English uh, National Ballet, creating new ballets for them for a little while. I'd been following his work and thinking, it's so cinematic, I want to do something with it. Is it a VR piece? Is it a short film something? So I was sort of, I had this percolating in my mind for a while and had started speaking to them about wanting to do this. And, and they were like, yes, we've got, we've got, he's, he's doing a, a, an original show for us. It's called Creature. It's going to be premiering March 2020 at <laughs> <laughs> Wells. Uh, why don't you, why don't you have a look at that? And then, you know, we can start talking about potentially doing the film. It will take you six months to put the film together and we can, we can have the show and see how successful the show is. And then you can make the film afterwards. We all know what happened. And within just a, within just a couple of weeks of the show, show's premiere, everything went into lockdown. And it was such uncertain times. And for a long time, the stage work, sort of on-stage productions were just dark. It, nothing was happening. No one understood how to do it. Film and television productions slowly, slowly found a way, this very complex sort of bubble system and testing and this, that and the other. I went back to the English National Ballet and I said, you've got these dancers. They they know the piece. Like, as things started opening up again, is there a way for us to make this movie before you go? Because there was a lot of back and forth as to whether stage shows would be up again and running again. And But we knew that we'd be able to make the film if we could get everyone together and do it in the right way. So incredibly and miraculously, we found a gap in the schedule for the dancers. We had enough time for them to rehearse and get up to speed because they're like athletes. They need to, actors learn their lines, dancers remember the dance in their bodies. So they get warmed up and they need to get into it before they can go out and perform. And, and then I thought, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. Things are still a little bit hairy, but I have an opportunity here. We're going to be shooting for 10 days. So it's not, it's a very small amount of time. I should just call up the people that I've always dreamed of working with. And that's what I did. And Asif Kapadia was the first one. And he has this obviously incredibly ambidextrous ability to work in fiction and fact and shorts and, you know, long form. And 
and obviously had made The Warrior his, fir his first feature, which is essentially a silent film, which I think in many ways Creature is as well. And when he and Akram first met, I thought, oh, okay, that's exciting. And there's also, it was also the excitement of thinking that we could have three principal creatives all be South Asian making this incredible piece of art. And then we brought together Daniel Landon, who's Jonathan Glazer's DP and is incredible and has an incredible team. Sylvie Landra, who was always in Paris, uh, Luke Bessel's editor, who cut the film for us and and has such an amazingly creative, intuitive mind that she was somehow able to look at six cameras worth of footage and make a movie out of it. Like, just some great people. And, like, I, I think the momentum and the wonder of, wow, we're out of the house, we're seeing real people, and we've just got to make sure that no one gets sick over the next 10 days make this film it was really exhilarating yeah it was really hard to pull it off I'm so I'm so proud of having done that I'm so proud of the team that it took to pull it off and we it was a real collaboration between the incredible crew and artisans at the English National Ballet and the management who gave us not only the financing but a great infrastructure this building that had a sound stage in it and and, and a whole bunch of facilities uh, dancers of course and then a film crew who very quickly had to learn how to work in tandem so it was a dance for all of us really Akram and Asif as well who are top dogs in their respective fields had to learn to create a language together to get this story onto onto screen that's such a lovely image and a lovely way of thinking about it. And I know as well that you've spoken about how the cross-disciplinary nature of it sort of pushed you out of your comfort zone in some ways. And, you know, you were having to flex muscles that maybe you hadn't before or in a while. I'm wondering how, as a producer, you adapt to those situations, you know, the pandemic, but then also the genre that you're working in and not let it kind of be a weakness, not let that lack of knowledge deter you. And one thing that I really have learnt about leadership is that I, I always say I lead from the heart and I think I used to initially lead from the head and I would have been very scared to say oh I don't know or I think quite often especially in independent filmmaking the producer is the person on the set who's made the least amount of films because of what it takes like if you're a gaffer you can be working on films like every month I think a part of leadership is really leading with humility and bringing together a team that is going to be as supportive of you as you are of them and as respectful of you as you are of them. And to me, that's really important because, yes, it's an army sort of attitude when you're going into and going into the trenches and you have to make your days and all the rest of it but if I can keep my cool and keep my distance in a way that people who are actually working on the physical making of the film can't really because they're in it and they have to be working at a certain rhythm it's really important for me to be able to keep to hold everyone in a, a bubble of safety and security and be able to get them to do their best work but that that's that's where I think a good producer, my idea of a good producer, it, it excels because I don't I don't want to micromanage because I can't micromanage. You know, there's people the the lighting people know better than me what to do. <laughs> I just need to 
sure that we're being respectful of each other, cogent of what the parameters are of the film that we're working within, and that everyone on my set feels that I'm there to help them do their best. Is there someone who modelled that for you, or is just kind of learning by experience and picking up these kind of traits and ways of working along the way? It was the school of hard knocks, really. It was learning from experience, and it was learning from also, there's two ways of holding on to things. You can make a fist and squeeze something and hold on to it, or you can open up your hand like this. <laughs> no, it's a podcast. I'm opening up my hand, palm facing upwards. And I've done a lot of work and studying around different models of leadership as well and have experienced in my board work a lot of different models of leadership. And and this, for me, is the most conducive to beautiful creative work. I think that's interesting that you raise your board work because I'd love to talk about that as well. Um, You've sat on um, boards for organisations such as the Bush Theatre and Bird's Eye View. I think it is quite an obscure um, process. Like people often don't really know like what boards do or what happens. Can you give us a little bit of insight as to what exactly you're feeding back on or commenting on or or guiding these organisations on? So essentially a board is responsible for the fiduciary health and governance and management of an organization. We're essentially a room full of consultants in a way that help senior management of a company run it in the best way possible for itself, if it's a for-profit company and for its shareholders, and if, if, if it's a charity to the best to the aims of the charity. So I'm the chair of the Bush Theatre at the moment. I sit on the board of Film Cymru Wales, which is an incredible organisation. I have sat as a trustee at Bird's Eye View and my first board position was as a non-executive director on the board of Channel 4. And I wanted to start doing board work because A, I wanted to learn more about different leadership styles and management styles. And I also, in particular, in in the case of Channel 4, I realised in the creative industry how few people that look like me are in actual rooms that where decisions are made and how damaging that is. And I, Althea Efenshuli and I were the first people of colour to sit on the Channel 4, on Channel 4's board in its 37-year history, which is hugely shocking and sad. So again, I thought it was an important thing to do. And my presence on that table was disruptive and meaningful. And again, that's that's kind of, I feel like what I'm on the planet to do, to be disruptive and meaningful. <laughs> it also demystified to me a little bit those big rooms of power. When you're sitting in a room like that, you know, full of stakeholders or powerful people, how do you disrupt meaningfully? It's really difficult. You have to find your voice. You have to find a voice that they will hear, which is not necessarily the voice that you've always had. It makes you realise how the distance between the people up top and people making the work. It was fascinating and shocking and sad to me you have to find your voice and you have to again be strengthened in that and not all boards do that well 
some boards are really you know have a have a level of interest and humility and excitement about bringing in new voices and and hearing what they have to say and letting that infiltrate the organizations but again it's only been in the past few years that people have started looking at their boards and thinking you know what it might not be a great idea to have like eight octogenarian white men in the conversation to me it's to me it's diversity of thought and that has it's not always to do with the color of someone's skin or where they're from you know it's diversity of thought is is a different thing and you know there's a great angela davis quote about how diversity is a corporate buzzword it's used to make sure that the people in the room might change or look a little bit different but what is happening in the organization stays the same and i and i and i think that's a that's really something to reflect upon in terms of how diversity has been misused by organizations has sitting on boards like that informed how you produce or what you want to produce absolutely how i produce in terms of wanting to create a leadership style that both engenders respect and feels like it is it is there to like i said bring out the best in incredibly talented people and also it's just it just reminds me that i've i've just got to stick at it because no one's going to be making no one's going to be telling the stories that i want to tell so i need to just i need to just keep doing it <laughs> i need to keep doing it and coming back to creature briefly i want to talk about obviously you had a this list of you know filmmakers that you're like i have to work with or i want to work with asif kapadia being at the top of that particular list and you know he is known you know he you cited the warrior but even in senna you know he he's breaking certain rules of form there and pushing boundaries in just such spectacular and precise ways and i'm wondering when you're working you know in the presence of someone like that whether it inspires you to do the same and and how you do that with production it often feels like with you know producing you are sort of following a bit of a rule book or a way of how things are done did producing something like creature afford you the opportunity to think outside the box in terms of how to make work uh such an interesting question yes i think one of the reasons creature exists is because we made it outside of the system it was entirely financed by the english national ballet who did not have to be convinced of the value of akram's work the show me as a producer asif as a director they were just like yes we want to do this so much of the having to do things by rote as a producer is because one is being pushed and molded and 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 directed by financiers who believe that things should be a certain way or made a certain way or focus you know creatively a certain way and i think having that financial freedom and it's not as if we did we didn't have a lot of money it wasn't like we had a huge budget we had a very 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 modest budget but we had that budget and there was no it was there and there was no ambiguity about it and there was faith towards us and there was like here you go we know what you're doing please go and make the good thing incredibly empowering and it's incredibly rare and i don't think it's a coincidence that every film that i've produced thus far has been entirely privately financed i wish it wasn't the case i hope it's not going to be the case in the future but i think it's like in startups vcs get involved in the running of the companies 
they find a really bloody good team and a really bloody good idea. And then they're like, okay, we don't know if this is going to work, but here you go, go for it. And that's how Silicon Valley works. <laughs> I wish the film industry was a bit more like that. I'd rather someone just said like, no to me, I don't think you can do this, so that's fine. So please go somewhere else. Rather than this sort of like strange, oh, well, maybe you could, but we're just going to test you and we might give you a little... It makes you second guess yourself. And I think one of the reasons this film has, there's a confidence to this film because I was very confident going in. I was empowered to be confident and therefore I could empower my team to be confident in the making of the film. You're so right though. It's, yeah, because I think we force filmmakers and artists into a system as opposed to, uh, you know, understanding that there are many systems or there could be many systems under which work can be created I'm wondering as well this feels like it ties in with the creation of your own production company Little House Productions because it feels like you set that up and I I think I've read that you said that you set it up to kind of create your own work environment and I'm wondering what that work environment looks like for you how are you productive? I'm productive around the different projects I'm working on so I feel like I have like these little clusters of teams, different writers and directors that I'm working with, different sort of stories that I'm like trying to get or that I have or that I'm engendering. And they give me little bursts of energy in different ways. And I I quite like that way of working, that sort of cluster way of working rather than sort of going in every day and running of the business. I'm at a stage in my career where I feel like I've made some really great films I love Creature I love that it was such a left field choice for me and I'm now living in New York and excited to see what the landscape has here and have I have various projects that I'm out with but I'm also really keen to see you know what are the new ways of working and with whom it is lonely being an independent producer and I do yearn for family and infrastructure and yeah I think that's something that I'm gravitating towards at the moment. Yeah absolutely and within these kind of these almost like mini families you say these clusters do you have a sense of you know are there priorities like how do you balance that slate and and know where to direct your energy at any given time? You're always spinning plates as a producer so it's it's keeping an eye on all of the babies, making sure they're all fed and watered. I think for me, it's quite an organic and intuitive thing. You can feel when a project is sort of, when the snowball's getting bigger and where you need to sort of push it or leave it. And and sometimes things are, are dormant for a little while and, and other times you're like, right, now is the time to be out with this and to be talking about it. And I do that quite organically. I'm wondering if, you know, the move to New York was precipitated because you feel like they work differently, you know, over in America? Like, whether you think it is easier to make a certain type of work over there? I think the thing about America that excites me and is exciting me at the moment is the sense of filmmaker community here. Abundance creates abundance. It's just bigger. And therefore, people are, the people working in the industry across the board are a lot more generous with, like, time and opportunities and and all of that stuff. And I also think in terms of the content that's being made, I'm I'm really excited by how you are seeing really empowered teams from top to bottom. If you look at the credits of something like Beef, that is a show that's been produced, written, 
directed, created, acted by people from a community that are telling us quite a specific but incredibly universal story. That's just a story. That's not explaining identity or being whatever. But that just feels so real, so fresh, so exciting. And, you know, that's a recent example. There's lots more. But I'm very excited by the fact that that is something that exists. And it feels like there's more that exists in that vein in the US um, than there is in the UK at the moment. I love British filmmakers. I love British talent. I love the industry there. And I've spent a lot of time there and have a lot of respect for people working in it. I want to find a way to be able to speak with an unencumbered voice. I would be very yeah, excited to hear what that unencumbered voice sounds like. I'm wondering if there's something that you're proudest of having achieved in your career thus far. You know, still being here, still being here, we mustn't underestimate that I'm not supposed to be here. And I've been told many times overtly, covertly, that I'm not supposed to be here. And I still am. So I'm really proud of that. I try I try not to be a self-deprecating. I'm not a self-deprecating Brit at all, I don't think. But it's nice to be in an environment where there's more belief <laughs> that there's a space for you. That's what we all want. We want a space for us, right? Yeah, a space that we don't have to keep kind of creating over and over and, as you say, fighting for. I'm wondering if there's a piece of advice that you've been given that has either steered your course or just stayed with you throughout your career, perhaps that you've come back to in the moments that you didn't think that you could stay here. A perfect film is one that gets made. <laughs> a wise person told me that. Um, a few years ago I, I I think and I think that also speaks to just from a producer's point of view the creation of things is difficult and hard and you're you're the uh, you know you're the spark that start starts these things off and they can take years uh, sometimes but your job as a producer is to get it made and it's also so nice to have that as a reminder that like its existence is enough because we almost sometimes feel like we have to re-qualify the existence of something, you know, after we've made it. And then it's about, you know, the audience figures, the box office or, you know, any other kind of, you know, uh, quantifiable stat that we applied to something to say, OK, and therefore now it's a thing. But it's like, no, 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 it's like it was always a thing like from the moment that you made it happen. Anyone would be very lucky in their lifetimes to make a successful film or several successful films, whatever that means to you. Um, and my definition of success certainly has changed over the years and is ever evolving. But I also, I also think that the films I'm making as a brown woman that I'm producing, and I'm sole producer on Creature, the standard for what constitutes as success is going to be different for every person who has opinion about it. So... I just can't concern myself with that. It's difficult not to because you're, you're, you know, and it, and it's so wonderful to have a film that's so incredibly well reviewed. Uh, I wish we had made millions and millions at the box office, but really, I can say I made a film with people that I've always wanted to make a film with. That's a dream come true. I made a film which is beautiful and unusual and weird and tantalizing. That's a dream come true. I made a film that 
has touched a lot of people. And that's also a dream come true. What's your current working definition of success? Being at peace with oneself. You can drink the Kool-Aid in, in the industry and, and, and I just, I've seen that happen to people and, and I have done myself and, you know, you get to a point, maybe I'm just old or wise or I don't know, but I, I want to, I want to live and work abundantly. I want to live and work with people who love and respect me. Um, I want to create stories that I think really, really need to be out in the world. And if that makes, if that means I make a handful of films in my life, that's cool with me. I'm not operating a volume business here. I just want to work with people who are doing this for a reason. That's a perfect definition by my standards. And finally, is there a film by a woman director that you'd like to recommend today? I will say, because it's so joyful, go see Nida Mansour's Polite Society because it's a whole bunch of fun and I'm so glad it exists. Excellent. Uzma, thank you so much. This has been a really energising but also therapeutic chat. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Nicole. for listening to this episode of best girl grip if you liked what you heard please do rate review and subscribe spread the good word etc if you're interested in other conversations with producers there are many in the archives they include chi tai helen gladders sarah brocklehurst and alam shakarafar in the meantime have a great week and i'll be back next friday with a brand new episode <laughs>